Content warning. This episode includes the topics of suicide, online harassment, and death threats. If you can't wait a whole month for our next episode, you can join our Patreon membership for early releases and exclusive content for only $5 a month at patreon.com slash transgender school. And you can rent our 90-minute course, Transgender Allyship 101, where we reenact my coming out and teach you how to be a true ally to any trans person in your life at vimeo.com slash on demand slash trans ally. Welcome to the Transgender School podcast, where we talk about diverse LGBTQ identities and experiences so that we can all be better allies and advocates. I'm Bridget. My daughter Jackie came out as a transgender woman when she was 19. I was totally unprepared, but I've learned a lot since then. When I came to terms with my identity, I realized that I needed to transition, but coming out was very stressful. Now I want to help other trans people navigate their own experiences. Welcome to episode 35 of Transgender School. Thank you for listening. Today we are going to talk about a story you might have heard about in the news recently, ultimately a really tragic story, but I think some important lessons for our audience. So I'm going to hand it over to my mom, who's going to summarize the story, and then we're going to discuss. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm going to be reading the story from various news sources that we combined to try to give you as much of a picture as we can of what happened in this situation. So Fred Copeland, who was also known as Bubba, was an American politician, a Republican, and a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Phoenix City. So he served as the mayor of a small town called Smith's Station, Alabama, from 2016 until his death, which was very recently on November 3rd of 2023. He had been married twice. He had a son from his first marriage, and he had stepdaughters from his second marriage. And he was well known for leading his city through the horrific devastation of a big storm that led to a tornado with winds up to 170 miles an hour. It hit nearby Beauregard, killed 23 people, and that earned him FaceTime with then-President Donald Trump, who was touring the storm devastation. He seems to have earned the respect of local elected officials. So he was also very involved in the church as lead pastor of the First Baptist Church in nearby Phoenix City. He also owned a convenience store near Lake Harding in Salem. So during this time of living this very public life as a mayor and a Baptist pastor, as well as a store owner, he was living a secret life that was being played out on social media, especially on Reddit, also on a private account on Instagram. And he operated these social media accounts claiming to be a transgender woman under the pseudonym Brittany Blair Summerlin. So this went on for quite some time, apparently. There are many photos of him operating as this identity on social media and connecting with people and posting there. And I guess this was uncovered by a conservative news website 
On November 1st of 2023, a conservative news website reported on social media posts by Copeland in which he wore women's clothing and described himself as a transgender curvy girl using the name Brittany Blair Summerlin. The content of Copeland's posts allegedly included explicit photos of of himself, as well as graphic memes. Before the news report was released, Copeland allegedly gave a private statement to the website, claiming that his behavior was a hobby for getting rid of stress. He requested that the article not be published, citing his family and his position as a pastor. Leaders in some of the state's Baptist associations responded to the article with a statement that they had serious concern about Copeland's alleged unbiblical behavior. They said, we are praying for the leaders of the church family as they seek to determine the truth concerning these accusations. As the people of God, we pray for the pastor and his family as well. Speaking at First Baptist Church on November 1st, Copeland said, yes, I have taken pictures with my wife in the privacy of our home in an attempt at humor, because I know I'm not a handsome man, nor a beautiful woman either. He added, I've been the object of an internet attack. The article is not who or what I am. I apologize for any embarrassment caused by my private and personal life that has become public. This will not cause my life to change. This will not waver my devotion to my family, serving my city, serving my church. I'm thankful for the grace of God and the willingness to forgive. I have nothing to be ashamed of. A lot of things that were said were taken out of context. In conclusion, I love my family. They're number one. And I'm sorry for what my actions may have caused. Now, shortly after the article's publication, Copeland told former Phoenix City School superintendent, a friend of his, that he was experiencing dark days. This friend later stated that he had contacted Copeland because he was concerned about his well-being due to people relentlessly attacking him online. On November 3rd, another article claimed that Copeland wrote violent fantasy fiction and republished the photos of community members online without their consent. One story described a transgender woman's deadly obsession with a local business owner, which the article claimed was based on a real-life person in business. An acquaintance of Copeland said that he had posted her name and social media photos online And she also recognized the names of local women in Copeland's alleged stories, calling the writings disturbing. So that same day, sheriff's deputies were responding to a request for a welfare check for Copeland when they spotted him driving his vehicle. A slow pursuit ensued until Copeland pulled over, exited his vehicle, and shot himself with a handgun. Copeland's church at Phoenix City held a morning service two days after his death. Political leaders from the area scheduled a prayer service for him, and a funeral was scheduled several days later. And his suicide has received national attention, and Lee County Democratic Party chairperson called Copeland the backbone of Smith's station and condemned the use of discriminatory and hateful rhetoric to target the personal lives as individuals. Doug Jones, the former U.S. Senator from Alabama, described the treatment Copeland received from the news that outed him as sad and disgusting. 
So that's the gist of the story. And Jackie, I'd like to know, this brings up a lot of timely and pertinent issues on many subjects. So I'd like to know your thoughts to start out. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is an incredibly tragic story. And just hearing that story that I've already read about several times, my heart really breaks for Copeland and for his family especially and for the women he wrote about and everyone who was affected by this i think i think a lot of people were really traumatized by this and that's obviously cost one life and is going to stay with a lot of people for the rest of their lives i'm sure i think there's a lot of lessons here but the most powerful one is obviously that this is what happens when you live in a community that forces you to stay in your closet your entire life and that was not his fault that he happened to live in that community. It's not the fault of anyone who happens to live in a conservative community. But unfortunately, there is this cycle that is really hard to break of just not talking about things and keeping everything in and repressing it. And, and unfortunately, this is what happens when you repress things. I mean, we we see it with religious institutions. We see it with the Catholic Church. This is what happens when you you can't be a human being, when you can't be who you are. It's going to turn into something destructive and, and something worse. And, and I think that's what you see with him writing this, this really disturbing fiction. And so I think, yeah, a really, a really tragic story all around wish we lived in a world where people could be themselves and things didn't get to this point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting how in the stories I read, we didn't give all the details, but I've read numerous articles on this. When he was first confronted, he first tried to deny that it was him. Mm -hmm. Of course, because this, I can only imagine how terrifying it would be to be outed in this way, living that type of, living his life that he lived publicly, living a very conservative life on the surface. And once it became clear that he wasn't going to be able to deny it, he tried to explain it in terms that he imagined might possibly be acceptable in his communities, right? This is a hobby. This is just something I do to release stress. My wife knows about it. I wear her clothing. And there are people who have identified that in the pictures he was wearing his wife's clothing because she was seen in that same exact clothing and some of those same clothing articles in her posts. So trying to, when he couldn't cover it up, trying to make it somehow tolerable, palatable in his communities, right? And then Ultimately, when everything came out, he saw no way out and to to take his own life. That was the only way out that he saw. And he's significantly, he was younger than me. He was in his late 40s. And it's just, I think, really heartbreaking to imagine that that someone could hit that point. And in one of the other articles, I found it really eerie that it actually said that he talked about years earlier being concerned about the suicide rate in his community and saying that he felt that social media was in part to blame, that people were so attacked and bullied on social media that he felt that that was contributing to suicide rates in the community that he was part of. And that was, I think, in some way prophetic, I don't know, or maybe even his internal knowing that he was putting himself at risk for that potential inevitability as well. 
Yeah. And I think it's really hard, especially when you consider that, at least from what I've read, there's not a record of him being openly homophobic or transphobic in the way that there often is with people who repress their own identities. And there's a long history, long controversial history in in the gay community of outing powerful gay conservative men, especially. And, And there's kind of a history of that because, well, you're being a hypocrite. You're saying that being gay is not okay and you're being part of that conservative culture and 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 it seems like this one's a little more complicated because it doesn't it doesn't seem like he was really actively articulating that transphobia that homophobia in the way that a lot of people do and so that makes it more complicated definitely Exactly. Yeah. And I couldn't find anything other than positive reports of his reputation as a mayor, as a pastor in his communities by all the people who knew him. And there were posts. One of the things they said about his posts is that, or not his posts, but his engagement with people on his social media accounts is that he was strongly encouraging people who are transgender to go on hormone replacement therapy. So he was confronted on that because this is obviously something that his political party does not support, but he was secretly trying, it seems, we don't really know his motivation, but it seemed that he was secretly, from what was reported about his posts and his engagement with people, encouraging people to come out as transgender and to go on hormone replacement therapy. Yeah, I think there was... It's interesting because with the things he was posting, you have kind of two buckets in my mind. You have normal repressed trans woman things, and then you have kind of disturbing Mm -hmm. things that are not really justifiable. And I think that when you live your entire life in the closet and when you never get to be yourself, that the line between those things blurs and then that you kind of slide into those unacceptable things because it's not real. You're so detached from the reality of it. So I think, yeah, I I don't know what his intention was with whether he supported trans people who were out or whether he wanted people to go on hormones or why he was posting some of the things he was posting. And there, there were some strange posts some kind of disturbing memes and other things that I saw I haven't I haven't seen everything that he posted but I've seen some of it and it was yeah it was kind of all over the place yeah absolutely absolutely and the point where he realized he could no longer deny this the trying to reconcile and I have a quote I think it's something for us all to really reflect on and think about he said what I do in my private life has nothing to do with what I do in my holy life. Does this have any effect on me being mayor that I sometimes put on a dress or sometimes put on makeup? Does that have anything to do whatsoever with me being mayor or being a pastor? That's a direct quote. So this attempt to reconcile, can can I still have this life? And can people know that this is part of what I do and still be a pastor and a conservative Republican mayor. It's just a fascinating attempt to try to reconcile in today's world with the division that we see someone holding on to the hope that they could reconcile these things. And ultimately he couldn't. 
no, I can't imagine having hope that one could, but he, he seems to have been trying to do that for, for part of the time. We hear so much about bullying on social media and people being outed and people being attacked. And we get, we get so much hate on social media. We've talked about that plenty before on the podcast. And so it also raises that issue of where is the accountability? How much responsibility do people have for the results of viciously attacking people and exposing them to the public and then the the consequences of that in this case someone taking their own life so another story that i also wanted to talk about today that also relates to someone hiding something about themselves or that they're doing from the world and doing something that a lot of people who know them would find surprising is that the San Francisco Chronicle published an article on November 4th, a hotline for California's LGBTQ kids got a death threat. They tracked the caller to San Francisco. And so I'll read a few excerpts from this. It was just before 5 a.m. in Indianapolis, where Chelsea had answered phones for the nonprofit Rainbow Youth Project for a year, when a call came in to the mental health hotline set up for LGBTQ youth in California. As sometimes happens, Chelsea wasn't able to pick up the call, so it went to voicemail. When she listened to the message a minute later, she heard a man's mocking voice. My pronouns, my pronouns, you misgendered me, he said. Second call, placed a few minutes after 5 a.m., sounded again like a rude joke at first. Then it turned furious, the voice no longer mocking, but menacing. The message was littered with transphobic language and threats. I'll kill you, the man said. Now, what was really interesting, this was a hotline that had been set up in August for students of Chino Hills Unified in San Bernardino County, which was actually the first district in California to put in place a policy requiring teachers and other staff to inform parents if their children identify as transgender at school. And within days of going live, the hotline had taken dozens of calls, mostly from students who needed support. Some felt they no, were no longer safe using their preferred pronouns or chosen names at school, but they also received hostile callers. They received people who would hurl slurs, who would rage, who would yell, who would taunt. And that was not the first death threat that Chelsea, the volunteer who was stopping the phones that day, had heard. But what was really interesting was that when they investigated this call, they traced it back to San Francisco. Shortly after the death threat was received, Chelsea, the volunteer, saw a reply to a post on Twitter sharing the hotline number that used very similar language to the taunting and threatening calls. So she looked up that person's profile to see where he lived. Then she returned to the voicemail to see where the call had been placed from. The area code was 415. The Twitter poster was a San Francisco man. So as the organization continued to investigate these death threats they were receiving, they realized that these calls were very easily traceable from a man living in San Francisco who had an active social media presence, an expansive LinkedIn resume talking about two popular apps that he created, and whose publicly listed address is a multi-million dollar home near Golden Gate Park. On Facebook, he carped about San Francisco politics and pride posted about his daughter. Now, the Chronicle gave us 
just enough information to figure out who this guy was. And they, while they didn't name him, his name did become public shortly after. His name is Steve German. I had not heard of the other app he founded, but he did found Final Draft, apparently, which is a very popular screenwriting app that I have heard of. So that was really interesting. And I think another powerful example of someone who, you know, is living in a very LGBTQ affirming city. I, I checked out his social media. It doesn't seem like he's someone who, with the exception of his Twitter, I mean, his Facebook and his Twitter were very different. He was talking about his kids and things on Facebook. And then on Twitter, he was just raging. I mean, it was locked by the time I I saw it. But the tweets that I saw cited in the Chronicle were not great. And it's just so interesting. You wouldn't think that someone who has such a good life and lives in such an affirming area would would even care about trans people, let alone feel the need to go out of their way to call a hotline created for students in an entirely different part of the state and make death threats against the people running that hotline. I think that was a really powerful example of, of just how divided people are on trans rights and just how angry this issue makes some people. And even in San Francisco, right in my backyard, where I feel safe. And, and I think that's really powerful and really concerning. And, and I mean, nothing's going to happen to this guy. There are no consequences for him. I mean, if it's clear that he made death threats. We'll see. Wow. It's pretty hard to prove, especially for against someone who's going to have immense, immense resources to fight this in court. There's a lot of very real crimes happening that police have to prioritize and, and calls like this, they're hard. And so I, I would love to see this guy be charged with the crime. I think he absolutely should be charged with the crime. I think it would be really disappointing if he wasn't. And I hope mm -hmm. that we're, we're at it, adding a show note or something by the time this is released to say that actually he was charged. But I don't think I've even seen, as of the time of filming this, at November 7th, I don't think, no no local news article has even named him. I could speculate that the reason he hasn't been named by any local news outlets is because they're afraid he would sue them, but that would just be speculation. Well, I think there's pretty good evidence that there are different systems of justice for different people and different levels and types of accountability for different people doing the same exact things. So two stories, two pretty upsetting stories, I think for a variety of reasons that we just wanted to share with you. This is, we talk about the issues that these stories bring up in all our episodes in some way or another, outing people, social media, people living in the closet, people living double lives, people presenting themselves one way in the public and then doing things like making calls, making death threats to a hotline for LGBTQ students and people out there who might be your mayor or your pastor living a secret life, claiming to be a transgender woman on multiple social media sites encouraging people to go on hormone replacement therapy and not to forget the much darker side of some of the posts that he was posting with violent themes and definitely very sexual 
themes. What an episode. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I do want to say, wait, before we wrap this episode, this unique episode, I do want to say that we referred to Fred Copeland with the pronoun he, because as far as we know, that was how he presented himself in the world. And this secret identity was not something that he wanted the public to know about. And his identity as Brittany Summerlin, a transgender woman, which is what he claimed to be on those sites, is not something that he would have wanted us to refer to him as. Thanks for listening in, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our Transgender School podcast. We hope you learned something new and that you're inspired to learn more. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And please be sure to check out our website, transgenderschool.org. You'll find many valuable resources there, including news about upcoming courses we'll be teaching. Make sure to join us for future podcast episodes. We'll catch you on the first Tuesday of every month. 